Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership guitarist and vocalist Kat Dyson best known for her collaborations with Prince and Cyndi Lauper. In addition to her own recordings, she has also worked with talents like Natalie Cole, Ivan Neville, Donny Osmond, T.I. Seals, Sheila E. George Clinton, Music Soul Child, Phoebe Snow, The Wine-Ins, Yolanda Adams, Cindy Blackman, Benny King, Bo Diddley, Celine Dion, Ziggy Marley, Mick Jagger, Jeff Healy, Sly and Robbie, and Bernie Worrell. In addition, she has performed extensively overseas and appeared on several TV variety shows. One of her most recent projects is the funk band Kamani, which includes drummer Nikki Glaspie and keyboardist Nigel Hall. Kat, thank you so much for joining the show. How are you? I am excellent, excellent, excellent. A little bit crazed because I'm about to get on another uh, European flight here and head on over to Italy uh, to work with my Italian 
family, uh, Zucchero and uh, the band and crew and everybody. So uh, I, I'm excited, but you know, there's there's a change and it's very different. And there's a lot of, you know, gates to jump through, a lot of forms to fill out, a lot of people to please and, and everything's changing. And then there's, you know, the question of safety and health and all the things that matter, but matter more now. So, you know, I'm excited, but I'm also careful and cautious. <laughs> well, good, you know, definitely be safe and uh, wishing you, you know, a very uh, successful and safe journey. Thank you. And uh, again, thank you for joining the show. I've been a fan for so long and I'm representing here. This is- I see, I see. The, all right, all right. I like that one. This particular one, first time being worn on the show, just for you, so. Oh, ho, ho, ho. world premiere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and where are you coming to us from today? I am in Los Angeles. I am in the, the, the beautiful uh, area of the studio city where it's been a hundred between a hundred and four or five and 111 for the last week or so. So add that to the equation of having to do everything that I have to do running around and it's hot. <laughs> so I'm not complaining because there's a lot of rain and there's a lot of storms and stuff going on there. But, you know, anybody that thinks that global warming is just maybe a fantasy, you know, not so much. <laughs> yeah. How long have you been out there? Uh, I've been in LA for over 20 years. Okay, so I moved from there in uh, 26, um, 2006. Yeah. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, my calculations are correct. We had a little crossover there. Mm -hmm. Yes, we did. <laughs> yes, we did. All right. So, uh, Kat, I want to take you way back and share oh. with the viewers, you know, how you first got into music and specifically guitar. Um. Well, I grew up a Southern girl in Virginia and every little girl, you know, you have to take piano lessons and, you know, do what all the little church girls do. And, you know, my family was a little bit different because we uh, were not Baptists, we were Catholics. So um, I did take piano lessons and I was singing in, you know, choirs in school and, you know, uh, choirs in church. But in our church, we had the nuns that also play guitar during certain masses. And, you know, there were always boys in their garage at Christmas who got the guitars. And I was like, mom, piano is boring. Please, can I have a guitar? Please, please, please. You know, the boys looked they were having so much fun. And we had a catechism class on Saturday and the nuns would teach us Latin and all the other things. And they had guitars too. And then, you know, then you see the Sally Fields, you see the flying nun, she's nun playing guitar. Everybody's playing guitar like, mom, buy me a guitar. So she did. And um, unfortunately, not long after that, she died suddenly of uh, aneurysm. And uh, my guitar was not really my cross to bear, but more my, you know, my memory, keeping my memory of her in my hands. So, you know, I just kind of, it gave me even more passion for it. Um, and I stepped away from piano because I wasn't really great at it. And uh, we didn't own a piano. Our piano was at the piano teacher's house. So when I played and practiced, he was always listening. So I never got to get away from him. So having guitar was great. And um, started playing in little, you know, junior high school talent shows, you know, just like you do growing up in small Southern town, listening to 
you know, whatever's on the radio, whatever is in the pop charts, you end up going from there to little clubs. And uh, then I went to university and uh, studied jazz guitar under John Shacklin and uh, Consuela Moorhead, who's Spike Lee's aunt. Uh, they were head of the jazz program. So I, I studied partly there and the other part was uh, classical voice on the classical side. So I kind of had a double major, so. And I was in school with the Wooten brothers, uh, not Victor, Victor was the baby, <laughs> but his older brothers, uh, we were in school together. Okay. And what, you know, music were you mostly drawn to, you know, and who are some of the artists? Well, at the very beginning, it was anything but jazz because my dad was a jazz guy. When he came home, he's like, turn that noise off. That's not your music. This is your music, you know, anything with loud guitars, anything. So I just wanted, I gravitated to anything he didn't like, like a rebellious kid would do. <laughs> so, you know, um, everything, Beatles, Stones, uh, Santana, Hendrix, you know, Marianne Faithful, you know, singer songwriters, anybody that was, you know, making great music and great words. And, you know, I loved poetry. So, you know, there it is, Joni Mitchell, you know, I mean, who doesn't love her? <laughs> Everybody, I listened to everything I could that was not jazz at the time when I was, you know, really young and, and learning. And of course, because he played it so much, it was in me anyway. And I remember, I think I was about 10 years old, having an argument with him when he, he would put on West Montgomery and say, that's a guitar player, you should listen to that. And I'm like, dad, that's two guys, that's cheating. That's not one guitar, you know, for my ears as a kid, I'm like hearing all this stuff and I'm like, this is not one guy, this is a bunch of guys playing, you know? He's like, no, that's one guy. <laughs> So yeah, so I, I, you know, I was a sponge. I listened to everything. And then, you know, you play in the clubs and then you got to play the top 40. So you listen, the top 40 is anything and everything. So, you know, everything from Tower of Power to James Brown to Creedence Clearwater to Doobie Brothers to you name it. So I just, just kept learning, learning songs. Was there a turning point that you can pinpoint when you decided or thought, hey, this can be my livelihood or career? Oh, uh, the minute my mom passed, I determined that I wasn't going to put it down. I didn't know where it was going to lead. But, you know, when I started, when we won a couple of talent shows and then started doing the little clubs on the beach and it was paying me more than my, my uh, allowance, I was like, oh, okay. But my aim in going to college was actually to be an educator, to be, you know, uh, teaching in the school system, you know, more, more choral, choral voice. I was uh, the student choral director at my, my high school and I, I was going for music education, for a music education de degree. So it wasn't like playing in a band and being famous was a thing, you know, it wasn't how I, envisioned it it was adjacent to everything else so it, it you know it was like two cars going down the same road okay it's still a music road but this one is maybe ahead of that one and I can do this one on the weekend while I study for that one so they were pretty much you know neck and neck like I keep telling my son who's 16 now you got to have a fallback you know <laughs> he, you he wants to be a, a novelist you know so I said hey you got to have something more practical and still go after that yeah I mean, you know, you can chew gum and walk, you can have more than one create, creative idea at a time. But 
I guess the thing for him would be to get something that is related to that, you know, that can be income streams as you go, you know what I mean? Like editing or, you know, proofreading or, you know what I mean? If he likes to read because he likes to write, you know, potato, potato. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, looking at your credits, Kat, it seemed like you started recording, you know, pretty early on, though. Um, you know, how did you first break into the studio and, and what was that path like for you early on? Well, I started writing songs, you know, in my teens and uh, um, out of out of university, uh, a band was formed and a group of us got uh, got together and there was uh, an investor up in Canada who invested in our band and we were an original music band and we went up to Montreal and uh, got into the scene there and started, you know, recording and we ended up being the house band for Mantra Records, which was uh, a disco label at the time. And uh, we ended up, you know, kind of doing what they did in Motown. We were the, the rhythm section for a lot of those groups that nobody probably would know unless you're in the dance scene from the 80s, but we played on a lot of good records. And uh, um, I'll say that, you know, my recording um, teeth were cut there in Montreal. I had done some things in the state, very limited, you know, in New York and DC. But when I moved up there, I was totally uh, involved in sing- singing and playing, you know, and because I studied opera, I sang in French as well. So that was always a plus, uh, which is how I got to work with Celine Dion and a lot of the uh, French Canadian artists that I work with because my understanding of French was, was, you know, solid enough in its basics for me to, you know, interact and, and move forward with a lot of artists there. What was exciting for you to go up to Montreal or was it sort of intimidating? Absolutely, it was fantastic. The thing about the French, even if they don't understand you, they let you know how they feel about what you're doing. And if you put the passion in it, they will give the energy back to you. They don't hold back. They're not trying to be cool like some, you know, L.A. audiences as opposed to this audiences, blah, blah, blah. The French will let you know, you know, and if you're if you're giving it 100 percent, they'll give you 100 percent feedback. And it's fant- it was fantastic, fantastic time. How do you feel about playing dance music? Um. I had been doing it, like I said, in, in junior high and high school, playing in the cover bands. So to actually be a part of original dance music and then to see it actually, you know, do well and sell records. I mean, I wrote a song when I was heartbroken at 16 and it ended up being a number one dancer for like 17 weeks called Can't Fake the Feeling by Geraldine Hunt. If people don't know, they won't know, but I get reminded every four months that I did it because I get a check. <laughs> <laughs> help write you know dozens of songs for that label for different artists and like I said I get reminded every four months <laughs> what year was that particular song I hit? uh I think to 80 81 yeah something like that in the in the early 80s yeah, yeah. Early 80s. Mm-hmm. so sort of um well at least in the states it was the tail end of disco um you know and then it became dance music and not disco anymore but yeah, you know, or, or club music I, you know, know. I don't have the monikers right but yeah, all yeah. I, you know she was on all the all the dance shows and she was on solid gold and all those shows and so there you go 
And I saw you had an album under your own name, right, in 82. Well, um, no, I put out an EP of myself once I got here to L.A. But the band True Color, which was the band that we put together that we went up to Canada with, we ended up winning a music competition called Rock Wars for, for the CBC. And a, a very good friend and the niece of Oscar Peterson, Sylvia Sweeney, uh, was you know working for the CBC. She was one of the producers and she sent our tape from that show to somebody in LA and we ended up getting a chance to try out for Star Search and we won Star Search. So, so that band put out an album. Um, as for myself, um, I put out a little LP once I moved to uh, here to uh, LA. And I think it was like 98, 99, something like that. So Katmandu? Katmandu is not me. That is an artist. That is a male disco artist from uh, uh, Mantra Records that we play for. That is not me. No. Okay. That's what I, I didn't I see. Katmandu. No, not me. I got gotcha. you. No. <laughs> it looked like you recorded a lot for an artist named Sherry, another one named Candy. I mean, I'm yeah, not familiar they, with yeah, these artists, but. Like I said, we were, you know, the rhythm session for all for a lot of the artists uh, in that with that label. So yeah, we will see credits. What what did that experience teach you as a um, player and also on the business side? Uh, discipline, and uh, you know, there was a lot of partying. There was a lot of things not to do. So I didn't do any of that. I just stayed focused and you know tried to be part of the creative process and all the little extra things they were doing they didn't really it didn't really uh entice me because i saw them kind of crash and burn every time they were trying so you know as musicians we had to just keep focused get ready when they say take one and they did all the partying in the control room we were on the other side making the music so you know i'm i'm a daughter of an of a army army sergeant so you know, I've got discipline and, you know, he taught us that. So in my professional life, I, I, I try to hold on to it. Not that I don't have fun, but, you know, when it's time to be focused and focused. So how long were you up in Canada? Uh, up until 96. And then I moved to Minneapolis. Yeah. So and what year about did you win the Star Search? Uh, we won Star Search in 86. Yeah. Was that experience just a bunch of fun or? Yeah. I mean, it was more of the same. Like I said, we, we competed in Canada and run one rock wars and then we got, you know, here to LA to that competition. And you had a minute and a half to get a full song out, make it look fun and exciting. Dance around, you know, get your verse, your chorus, your hooks, and maybe a bridge. And then you're not. <laughs> so it's like, get it all in a minute and a half. Cause that's all you have. So. It, 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 it sharpened uh, my songwriting and, uh, and our skills as a band, you know, to the point that we won. What, did you just play one track or many tracks? Or what did oh, you no, play no, for? no. We, we, we uh, competed many, many weeks. Yeah. And it was always uh, original material. It wasn't cover okay. at all. Yeah. And then that, winning that gave you a contract or? Yeah, winning that gave us 
money and got assigned in, in Canada to a contract. It wasn't an automatic contract. You know, we won a hundred, I think it was a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. And, you know, it gave us money to go in studio and start to produce. And as we came up with the songs that were going to be on the record, then, you know, the company signed us. So, you know, it made, it made the visibility made it make sense for them to do that. So did that pan out as you had hoped or did it fall short or? Oh, it didn't really pan out in the long term. It was fine for short term, but then the band didn't really stay together. People branched off and started doing other things. And, but we're still friends now and we've gotten together since. And, you know, we're still in each other's lives. So it wasn't like that. But, you know, folks had other ideas about what they want to do and how they want to do it. So. so in the mid 90s, you returned and um did you uh already have the work with prince at that point or did you, you know? um no after star search no um that uh prince happened uh via me going to trade shows i went to the nam show met sheila and then ended up in the german version of nam which is you know the mesa and met her again and i was with Rhonda, and we were actually uh demonstrating for a Canadian guitar company called Godin. And uh, she saw us and she said, hey, I'm doing this project for Sony Music of, you know, uh, all female project. And I've been talking to Wendy and Lisa and I've been talking to Michelle Degicello and I don't know you girls, but I like what you're doing. And do you write? Do you play different styles? Do you do this? And then she's like, send, a, send me a package. So we sent the package to Sheila. And what we didn't know is within a, a month and a half, I think of us sending her that package, uh, Prince called her up and said, hey, I'm changing the band. I want some girls. <laughs> and she sent our package to him. We didn't know. And she just called us up and said, oh, uh, that package you sent me, I sent it to Prince. He's looking for some new, uh, you know, band members. So um, he's going to give you guys a call and you guys have to go up and audition. And I'll be there because I'm going to be a part of it. And Rhonda went up first and then I went up second. And Sheila ended up getting involved with her band. And I think... Um, she had fallen ill or something on tour and uh, she had to recoup, you know, regenerate her body because I think her lung collapsed or something like that while she was on tour. And um, that's how it happened. Sheila opened the door for us. So, yeah. And did you already know Rhonda? Yeah, Rhonda and I worked together for many years. Yeah. So, how did yeah. you first connect with Rhonda? Montreal. Montreal. That's where we met. Yeah. What was your first early impressions of her as a, as a person and also a player? Very, very focused, very serious. Um, she had been playing from a very young age and, you know, she was in college when I met her and, uh, you know, very focused, you know, very creative, you know, unafraid of, you know, anything from upright to fretless to you name it. It was like, can you play it? Well, yeah, let's go. <laughs> she was, yeah, let's go. She's not changed. She's not changed. She's, she's still, yeah, let's go. And you guys just had good chemistry from oh, the get-go? And we became fast friends, yeah. <laughs> we still are. <laughs> so, and Cindy Lauper came before the Prince Connection or after? Yeah, Cindy, Cindy came before. Um, during my time in Montreal, a lot of bands came in and out and um, and we were able to go to some shows. And uh, I, ha I happened 
to be at a show and met Felicia Collins, who ended up, you know, being on the Letterman show. And um, when she got the call, um, she uh, was doing Cindy Lauper because Nile Rogers, she was Nile Rogers' protege. So whenever Nile would record with somebody and he needed them to go out, uh, Felicia would play with, you know, uh, uh, Al Jarreau because he did that record with Al Jarreau. She, she played with the Thompson twins, you know, and then she played with Cindy Lauper, you know, with whoever Nile would play because she had Nile's sound and his style, and, you know, his sense and sensibilities down. So she called me and she says, uh, I, I'm gonna leave Cindy's band because uh, Paul Schaefer just called me, but she's auditioning. You wanna come to New York and audition? She told me what songs to learn. And uh, I uh, jumped, I think, did I, I think I took a Amtrak there, down there. I think I, yeah, I think I took a train down there. And uh, she auditioned 30 women. And uh, cause she wanted Cindy's energy person. She wanted to replace a woman with a woman. And um, Phoebe Chanel was there at my audition and Cindy and Phoebe were talking the whole time and I was playing and Cindy was like, well, can you dance? Can you dance like Felicia? And I'm playing Wawa pedal. I'm like, well, if I can get my foot off this pedal, I can do something, but I'm not the same size as Felicia. She got her own groove, but I'll do the best I can. And she and, she and Phoebe started talking. Phoebe was like, I like this kid. She's funny, you know? And I think Phoebe helped me get it. So, you know, after that, we went and had some Thai food and the rest is history. <laughs> um, how would you describe Cindy? I mean, you, you said she likes high energy, uh, but what is she like in the studio and, you know, you know, on stage, but also behind stage? Very creative, very part of the process to the point of singing parts, you know, she knows what she wants to hear. She knows, like, um, we went to the studio and we did a song called I Want to Be Strong. I'm going to be strong. And she says, I know that it's, it was a cover song. And she says, but I want it to, I want it to have like an R&B heart. I want it, you know, I want it to, you know, feel like Curtis Mayfield, Otis Redding. You know, I mean, she would give you a virtual soundscape type of picture for whatever, you know, when we did stay just a little bit longer, she's like, okay, let's make it a Latin party. And we just came up with this thing, you know, and uh, Sheila E happened to be in town. She called, you know, some of the baddest Latin horn section guys and percussionists. I mean, it all happened like, and Cindy was like, okay, let's add this, let's add that, let's add this, <laughs> you know? And it all came together like one big party. Um, yeah, so, Creating with her is always, but the good thing is, you know, she can sing pretty much anything and she plays a bit of guitar. She, you know, she plays a dulcimer. She, she has in mind melody, you know, she has a greater picture of what she wants it to be, you know, and, uh, and she leaves room open for people that are creating with her. So it's always great. I assume that she was a Prince fan because she covered when you were mine. Well, she and Prince were friends. They, they, he respected her. She respected him. I think they liked each other, you know, quite a bit. He has to like somebody to let them do his song. So, you know, when he passed, we, you know, we had a moment on the phone and she was crushed and, you know, so was I. And, you know, we had a minute. She's like, 
He was my buddy. I was like, yeah, I know, you know. So yeah, so yeah. Yeah, they were both, you know, got their biggest fame at around the same time in the mid eighties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think he respected her. I'm not gonna go the normal path type of vibe, you know. I mean, I mean, by industry standards, she she got a record deal way late. She was in her mid thirties when she got signed. Now she would be considered old or over the hill or whatever. You know what I mean? If she got if you don't get your first deal until then. But she paid her dues. I mean, she did the clubs. She, she did, you know, she did all the work. So she came by it honestly. It's amazing how much more common that used to be in the industry, you know, where people could pay their dues for a while and be in their late 20s, 30s and still get over big. Like I just watched that new Rick James documentary. And he was already, you know, pushing 30 by the time he finally got, got through. So, but you know, those are people that, you know, they sell out, they create a following, you know, people love them until the point that somebody's got to do something. I mean, everybody thinks Lady Gaga is an overnight success. She also paid her dues. You know what I mean? A lot of the folks that, you know, everybody's finding, you know, enduring and endearing, they, they have, taking the time to do the work. And I mean, I know Beyonce is, is, is younger by that standard, but that little girl was focused at four or five years old. Yeah. And dad was like, okay, you want to do this? You know, so there is a focus there. You know, there is a focus of energy and there's an intent that has to happen. You know, you have to intend to be creative, you know, not um, just you know some people think it's just drops in your lap no there's layers to songwriting there's layers to getting better at your craft there's you know layers to finding out all the insides and nooks and crannies of your voice there's layers to finding out how many styles you can play on guitar there's there's layers to everything you know so uh cat when you uh, found out about the Prince audition, you know, was that a nerve wracking experience or were you just kind of like, whatever, I'm going to go with the flow? Well, I mean, for any other audition I've ever gone to, uh, there was a list of songs or a hint at what they might call, or, but there I had no idea. Then when I got there, he was on drums. Wanda was on bass and it was just trio. And what he ended up doing, uh, because the package that I sent to Sheila had a lot of stuff on it because she asked us a lot of questions. And he just ended up pulling styles from that package. And um, and we went from there. And sometimes he just wanted to groove, you know, because I was in that capacity, I was there as a support guitar player. So I guess he wanted to see if I could take direction, if I could hold a groove, if I could play the pattern. And we did not play one print song, not one, not one. <laughs> Were you uh, a fan going into it though, or uh, how much of a fan? Absolutely, absolutely. He asked me, well, you know, of my hits, what you like, you know, what do you, you know, what's your favorite, blah, blah, blah. And anybody that knows, you can tell you, if you ask me a question, I'm gonna be honest with you. And I said, well, you know, I know all of all the you know radio hits but what i really like is your soundtrack stuff because you're unhindered you're not chained to a record company you're writing to the image and i find that you know 
the records that you've done for films are what I really love because they let they let me see you expand as a guitar player and a writer. And he was just like, <laughs> you know, I, it was it wasn't an answer I practiced. He asked me, and I told. So when and how did you find out that you got it? Um, they called. Sheila called first to warn us that they would call. And then Paisley Park called and they put him on the phone. It's like, well, come up and play. I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> you know. And did you know the extent of it uh, off the bat or you just kind of were feeling it out as you went or what? What, what do you mean? Well, in terms of, did you know if you'd be playing in studio or going out on a tour or what was the initial? Um, um, initially, all of that was there. I mean, the, you know, the whole touring process was what was talked about in the beginning because when we got there, he had just left Warners. They wouldn't allow him to use his name. So, you know, he wrote Slave on his face and he was going by the artist formerly known as because Warners was like, if you use that name, rah, 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 you know, and so it was, it was just, it was another formation of MPG. So all things, you know, we were rehearsing uh, pretty much hits and the songs from the new record, Emancipation, because that was his first record on his label for his thing, his freedom. So he's like, I'm going to make this statement and they can't stop you know, so so it was a kind of show them period. So you know, m you know, my main thing was he had you know it was it was a three CD product pro project, and he had pretty much recorded everything. And that he even let me once I got there play anything on it was a blessing because he plays guitar. You know, he when he goes in the studio, he really doesn't need anybody. <laughs> so you know, as we practice and play songs he's like oh that chord voice and I like what you did there let's go in and you put this on that you know he would just kind of sprinkle and add me in you know the gumbo was made I was just like a little little sprinkle <laughs> so you know so uh it was awesome it was a learning experience uh it was camaraderie it was you know brother and sister it was you know we, we laughed we joked around and we got really serious so, so there was a bit, bit of everything in there and what tracks did you get to embellish on in Emancipation? Uh, I'm sure you know. Um, well, emails one, right? Yeah, um, and the love we make, I played uh -huh. on that. Um, uh, uh, Dreaming about you, uh, played acoustic on that. Um, get your groove on, I think. You know, we 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 were in doing vocals. We at, at that time we didn't know what the songs on the record were. We would just, he would just show us something and we'd go in and we didn't know what was gonna end up where. So he was simultaneously cutting all the time. So half the time, I didn't even know titles. You know what I mean? I didn't find out until the product came out. And then, you know, somebody emailed me the other day and said, I, I saw your name on this blah, blah, blah track. And I'm like, well, now that he's gone, they're reissuing stuff. And I don't know what's where or what's what, you know? and I don't know sometimes what the titles were because, um, you know, so. Yeah. Um, what, what was he like in, in, in the studio when you were in the studio? I mean, did you find that he was, um, 
sort of a taskmaster or um, what kind of vibe did he set for you? Um, every, every, every day was a little bit different. Every song was a little bit different. Every experience was a little bit different. I, I think that he just, you know, he, he, he would try to, his best not to find himself boring because he had so much stuff going on in his head, you know? So I, that's, that's a hard question to ask. What, what was it like um, preparing for that uh, tour? Lots of rehearsals, lots of playing rehearsals, lots of dancing rehearsals, lots of choreographing, lots of staging, lots of you here, and then we're shooting videos. Like I said, it was all, there was always something. There was never, okay, tomorrow we're going to do this. No. <laughs> you spend from minimum eight to 15, 16 hours a day there, and you do what comes off of his head. He knows what you're doing. We don't know. Was it the hardest you ever had to work, or had you done things like uh, that before? Um, I, I can say that the length of days and the intensity of it, yes, but it was very similar in ways to things I'd done with other people, but he was so nonstop. He would maybe sleep maybe four or five hours a day and then zoom. <laughs> so, you know, you had to kind of get into, into the rhythm of that, you know. I had uh, Marva King was on and she was talking about, you know, and she had worked with so many uh, well-known people before hooking up with Prince. And she said that, you know, none of those had prepared her for how hard the work was, you know, being part of MPG, so. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, you know, I've done a lot of touring and, and, you know, with my own band and everybody, you know, everybody has a flow of rhythm, but I'm gonna say the consistency of days was a lot, but, you're there in Minneapolis, you're there to do that. So I didn't, I didn't really um, let it take me out. I just, you know, it was the work that needed to be done. How, how much leeway did he tend to give you to kind of, you know, do your own thing and embellish a little bit or? Uh, it was from song to song. Some songs, yes, some songs, no. <laughs> some songs is like, and then at times it would be me and Mike Scott or sometimes just me and him, and then me, him, and Mike Scott. Then it was like, okay, let's fit these this puzzle together. And then it's like, okay, now you're by yourself. You know, so every <laughs> every song and every arrangement, and then we would get to sound check, and he would then change the arrangement right before the show. You He'd be like, toes. <laughs> I don't feel like playing this. I think I'm gonna play that. Okay, you do this. <laughs> You know, so Gemini, never a dull moment. <laughs> were there one or two songs that were the most challenging for whatever reason? Oh, I can't say one was more than the other. The, the most challenging thing was, you know, making sure that I had, you know, the, the right intent and the inflections and sitting inside the rhythm as he does, because it's like, you know, putting on somebody else's shoes. You might both have the same shoes, but they're gonna fit your feet a little bit different than they fit somebody else's feet, you know what I mean? So, you know, I could play Kiss, but then he would 
do something a little bit different because of the way his hands were built or because of the way his guitar was set up or because of the way he approached it percussively, rhythmically. There would always be that one little piece, you know. So it was always trying to find the pieces that fit along with how he saw it and how he did it. And then he would go, but yeah, but you got to make it clean or you got to cut off here. Uh, this one, you got to be a little bit more loose. You know what I mean? So every song had a little something. I know when he would rehearse back in the revolution days, they would get a lot of actual songs coming out of some of those rehearsals. Did you sense that any actual songs were being generated from the rehearsing or was it pretty much all for the tour stuff? Well, with MPG, with the original MPG, some engineer taped their rehearsals and sold them as product in Europe. So he would not allow us to take anything. We had to learn, we had to have a shorthand way of writing down all the arrangements by hand because he would not let us take. So that I don't know. <laughs> if he was taping in the studio, that's, that was on him. But uh, for the most part, when I was there, he, he had just gotten burned by a lot of people. So his element of trust when it came to taping was, uh, <laughs> Yeah, between that and the Warner Brothers stuff, man. Um, yeah. Can you share with us, Kat, one or two of the most unforgettable memories of being out on that tour? Hmm. Um, I played slide and he doesn't, right? And he loved Bonnie Ray. So um, from time to time he would, he would always change the set list. I mean, I left Paisley, I think, I think I'd written out 131 songs. And um, I had a slide set up and every now and then he would just, just play some slide on this or, you know, for the after party, he just liked it. And um, one night we did, uh, it was either the cross or what if God was one of us. I think it might've been the cross. And he says, just let it go. And Shaka Khan was with us, uh, opening for us at the time. And he's like, just go, just solo, just go. And um, he left the stage and just let me have it, you know, which never happens. And uh, when I came off the stage, Shaka was like, that was good, but you know, you're not gonna get another one, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know I would scat some solos and he would come up to me and say now do that one every night I'm like but it's improv he's like but do it just like that every night <laughs> you know he, he really believed in the joy and repetition and you know he would encourage me in his way and that was you know it was always fun to kind of do something a little bit out of the way that he wouldn't think about it. And I, at that time, uh, Godin had the LGX series, which were a MIDI guitar. So I could really like, and it really tracked well. And at the Hollywood Bowl, uh, during the, every show, he would change clothes, right? So we would have to do an extended intro of a song. So we were doing an extended intro of Do Me Baby. And he said, you know, and Mike Scott was there. So he played a guitar solo. He's like, do something different on that synth guitar. So I played a flute solo on the guitar. <laughs> and the crowd was just looking at me like, you know, 
the guitar was underneath it, but the flute sound was on top. So it was textured and the crowd loved it. And he came up and looked at me and flicked this <laughs> handkerchief at me like, I didn't tell you to do all that. You know what I mean? I mean, but we, we joked around a lot. So that was always fun when I could do something to surprise him, which was very hard because, you know, he plays everything, he knew everything, you know? But that was kind of fun. When I could make him laugh, that's, you know, that was a good part. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.